Hello and welcome to Speaking Spirit, where we talk about all things spiritual. Your host, John Moore, is a shamanic practitioner and spiritual teacher. And now, here's John. Hello, everybody. It's been a little while since I've done one of these. I've been um, busy with a heck of a lot of things. And um, I'm not trying to be one of those people who wears busy as a badge of honor. Um, I just literally got busy. It's nothing necessarily to be proud of. Um, working on a lot of things right now. And um, things I'm excited about, I'm I'm. Uh, I'm writing a book right now. Um, hopefully, I'll be able to talk about that very soon. But I'm excited about the project and have been um, working with clients and uh, you know spending summertime with my family and all kinds of stuff. So good things, good things. Been busy with good things, and I hope you are too. The things that you find yourself busy with, I hope they are. Things that enrich and enliven you. Sometimes we have to do things that uh, that don't, and that's okay too. So today, I'm going to talk about spirits, all kinds of spirits. I'm going to talk about uh, angels and demons and fairies and ghosts and uh, oh my, it sounds almost like I'm talking <laughs> lions and tigers and bears. Oh my. Um, but uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about all of these um, spirits and sort of my take through the shamanic lens of you know do these things exist are they real how do they exist how do we interact with them what part do they play in our lives that sort of thing um, spoiler alert yes I think they exist um, but it's complicated. A little bit. It's a little bit complicated. I'm going to talk about that today. But I hope you're doing well. It is a rainy morning as I record this. I look out. I actually am one of those people. I mean, I enjoy all weather um, as long as it's not dangerous to me. Um, I enjoy looking out on a rainy day. enjoy looking out on a sunny day. Um, I'm always looking out into nature as I record these. And I hope the calmness that comes that I get from looking at nature the 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 sense of beauty at least comes through a little bit in my voice I'm very excited to see that um, there are so many people listening to this podcast from all over the world and welcome wherever you are from um, I see uh, people on all you know all kinds of all different continents and many many different countries and I think that's a wonderful thing and I love and appreciate all of you and uh, hope that hope to make this as useful as possible for you if you're interested in spiritual topics I try to switch it up and talk about interesting things and have interesting guests and um, hoping to have some more guests very soon um, I have a few few people lined up um, to come on the podcast. It's just a matter of getting schedules to align. So it's temporal things that can step into the way. So let me talk about, um, I'm going to talk a little bit about shamanism because that is my path and that is the lens through which 
I view spiritual topics. Um, I describe it as a lens because it is a viewpoint, right? It is my viewpoint. I have lots of lenses that I look through things, look at things through, right? I have, I grew up in a culture. I grew up with a family. I grew up, you know, um, you know, I was raised predominantly in a, in a Christian environment. All of those things affected how I perceive the world and what I think is true and what I think is not true. Um, and so when I talk about things and I say this is the way things are, um, there should be the understanding that it is through my particular lens and that I am not saying if we differ in our beliefs or how we perceive the world that you are right and I am wrong or I am right and you are wrong. It is very possible that through our individual lenses, we are both right. I know that can be mind blowing because there is, um, there can be, again, this is another lens there, you know, there's the lens that um, there can be only one truth. Right. Um, either you believe this or you don't, and either you are right and you are wrong. Um, I, I just I think that as much as we can get away from that and sort of say, okay, I believe this and you believe this, and we could both be right. There could be a way that we are both right. I think that's a viewpoint that has served me very well in dealing with people who have very different um, sets of lenses that they look through than I do. So I'm going to talk a lot about um, spirit, and, and I'll talk a little bit about some religious viewpoints and that sort of thing. And, you know, if I don't I have to use really broad strokes, right? If I talk about, quote, unquote, the Christian viewpoint, I recognize that there are something like 14,000 recognized sects of Christianity in the world. And that is a, um, a stunning array of differences in belief that all, that all consider themselves Christian, right? And they, and they have some underlying commonalities, um, but practices and beliefs are different, or there wouldn't be different sects, right? There wouldn't be different, they place emphasis on different things. They look at Christianity through different lenses, so if I talk about a Christian viewpoint, I'm using a very broad brush to paint a wide variety of things. And so I don't mean to offend anyone when I say that. Um, if I talk about a Buddhist viewpoint, again, it's a very broad brush, right? There are many different schools of Buddhism out there. <clears throat> I have experience with maybe three of those. And so I can only talk from my own personal understanding, of course. And so um, take that for what it is. I don't mean to offend. And if anything I say runs counter to your um, counter to your own personal beliefs, you are welcome to think that it's bullshit, right? Um, you are welcome to think that it's it's not true. I'm not I'm not trying to get you to believe anything. I don't proselytize. 
I'm presenting some information that comes through my particular lens of viewing at the world, viewing the world. But it might be information that resonates with you. And hopefully it's something new. Hopefully you learn something from each one of these podcasts. I really do aim to inform, to empower, you know, to um, provide something that's, you know, that's interesting. Talk about something that I have experiences with. So I'm going to talk about, uh, I'm going to talk about spirits today and all different kinds of spirits. So I, you know, again, like my background is shamanism. And so shamanism, um, and again, a broad brush, because there are many different forms of shamanism from all over the world. There are some core things that shamans do all over the world and throughout time. And um, there are some things that differ based on the cultures that they come from. Right, even the word shaman isn't used. Um, we use it in English. Um, you know, it is. It's a. It's a loan word. We borrowed it from Russian and German, and they borrowed it from Tungsic in Siberia, and that might have been borrowed from Chinese or Pali or Sanskrit. And before that, you know, some some root language. You know, before that, so even that word is not universal. We use it in English, but um, because we don't have a different word, right? Um, I get, I have seen, um, I've seen arguments about cultural appropriation with that word. Like we can't use that word because that word belongs to these people. Um, that's just not true. Um, I mean, you can argue whether or not I'm allowed to use that word. I'm allowed to use the word shamanism or shaman or whatever. Um, I mean, it, it seems like a ridiculous argument, like deciding what words, what people can use based on where they were born and to, you know, and where their parents were born seems really, really silly to me. But um, there is, there can be an argument for cultural misappropriation when we take, um, when we take things from other cultures and misuse them or package them up and sell them in ways that dishonor other cultures that certainly is <clears throat> problematic. And um, so, but the word, the word shaman is the only word we have in English to describe this phenomena. And we did borrow it just as we borrow lots and lots of words into English, right? Um, you know, English is this cobbled together language. It is a roughly Germanic language with lots of, uh, you know, Latin and French and Greek and, um, Spanish and, you know, even things from Hindi and all kinds of stuff. Um, even some, you know, fil- you know, Tagalog words, you know, boondocks comes from boondock, which means mountain in Tagalog. So, um, and if you're listening from the Philippines, um, hello, my friends in the Philippines. Um, so we borrow all kinds of words and as do most languages borrow words. So I'm not going to Maybe one day I'll do a whole podcast on the cultural appropriation thing. Um, but um, I, you know, shamanism as a core practice has every culture in on the planet, just about every culture has, you know, that has any sort of recorded history or, you know, cave paintings or anything practice shamanism. So, you know, it's safe to say that everybody 
has a direct bloodline connection to um, shamanic ancestors. Um, so I will continue to practice and um, try to educate people who scream cultural appropriation at me. Um, it happens. It, it, it you know it, it's and I understand where people's hearts are. You know their hearts are in the good pl- in a good place. They want social justice for peoples who have been um, oppressed and their culture has been taken away from them. And trust me, I want the same thing, um, but you have to go about it in a way that makes sense and is actually informed and not ignorant and, you know, um, understand understand what you're talking about. Um, and don't, don't, attack, <laughs> don't attack allies. Trust me on this. Um, you know... Uh, you don't want, you know, people who recognize when people are on your side and don't attack them. Um, anyway, enough enough advice. On to spirits. So shamanism is inherently animistic. And, and um, if you're not familiar with the term animism or animistic or you've heard it or, you know, uh, even if you have... I'm going to describe what that means. I always try to define, like if I if I add a little piece of vocabulary in or I talk about something, I'm going to define it um, because I want you to understand what I'm talking about and my intentions as best I can. Um, because we might have different definitions of words. And, um, you know, if, if I go around using a word in a way that isn't that you're unfamiliar, it just causes confusion. And this isn't to say that my definitions are right. Again, they come from my background, my upbringing, my training, my schooling, my culture, all of these things. So, um, you know, animism for me is a belief in a multiplicity of spirits and it carries the idea that spirits are everywhere. And for me, um, and maybe not everyone else who could be described as animistic, is the idea that everything everything that we can perceive and a whole lot of things that we cannot perceive are spirits. Um, so some people might have the concept that things have spirits, that living things have spirits. And, um, you know, non-living things don't have spirits. Um, but, you know, it having the, having the belief that all living things have spirits could be conceived as animistic. I take a little bit of a different tack, and I say that all things are spiritual. All things are spirits. Some of the things that are spirits have physical representation, and I do not differentiate between what we would consider in the physical realm living and non-living things. So um, anything that I can perceive as an individual being or object or whatever, I consider a spirit. So, for example, a rock is a, is a spirit. It has a physical representation, a river is a spirit, but it has a physical representation, but a rock and a river might not be considered living things by some people. And I think about, um, I think about uh, the Shinto religion from Japan, right? 
So in Shintoism, um, places definitely have spirits, waterfalls, um, rocks, places in nature, especially, um, have spirits or are spirits, the kami, right? The spirits of the Shinto spirits and, um, you know, houses and places and places of worship and, and all of these things in many cultures have spirits. And I'm going to talk about angel, you know, the idea of angels and demons in a little bit. Um, but the word demon comes from Greek, and it just sort of means spirit. Um, you know, in the Christian belief system, if you believe that demons are real, you might believe that they are fallen angels and that they're evil and that they're here to tempt humanity and blah, blah, blah. But that that um, historically, the word demon um, could be a helper spirit, right? And so you would have a house demon, which was a, or daemon, which was a spirit that lived in the house that was helpful, that protected the house and, you know, that sort of thing. So, but, you know, I got to be honest, when I hear the word demon, I think of, um, you know, diabolical. I think of hell and hellfire, you know, right off the bat. And then I remind myself of, you know, the true origins of that word. And I think in a lot of ways, um, what, what a religion like Christianity did when it came into an area and um, took over and people were pagan or had other belief systems is that they turned their uh, gods and helping spirits into devils and demons, right? If you think about... Um, Pan, the Greek god of nature, that has cloven hooves and horns, is a type is a satyr, right? Cloven hooves and horns is the way that the devil was described in many Christian beliefs, right? Um, and so I think that this happened uh, frequently to convert, um, in an effort to convert local pagans to Christianity. They're like, oh, you know, you've been, you know, that's this image that you have of this God that you've been worshiping and making offerings to, um, that's actually a demon. And in some places, um, you know, if you think about, um, religions, spiritual systems like Santeria and, and some, you know, um, African American, um, practices, they took African gods sometimes and equated them, uh, with saints, right? So they could openly worship St. Michael, for example, and St. Michael might um, refer to, um, in their mind, might be a placeholder for some African god, some other, you know, some other god. And so you can see, um, particularly in, you know, when I have been in um, strongly... Roman Catholic countries, you can see a lot of um, paganism woven in, um, which I actually think is kind of cool. Um, I like to see, you know, um, you know, there's a lot of saint, there's a lot of saint worship, and that goes on, and um, you know, uh, you know, in uh, sort of Mexican culture, that is really, really interesting um, to me. And so, um, you know, it's important to understand that that sort of thing. So, anyway, from a 
talking about animism, back back on subject a little bit. Um, I do digress a lot, but you know, I don't apologize for that because I hope that the information I'm adding is useful and interesting. But back to animism. So, um, you know, from a shamanic perspective, everything I see in the middle world, and now the middle world is where we live, right? Um, Midgard, if you're going to go into the Norse um, pantheon, is where we live. And we perceive other worlds in shamanic trance um, that we can travel to and where we run into all kinds of spirits there. But when I'm in Journey, which is a shamanic trance state, I can perceive um, spirits everywhere. The world is full of spirits. And um, it's interesting to me that um, there are so many in such a different variety, and sometimes the world can appear quite crowded. Um. And, but it's interesting that we don't perceive these things all the time, but sometimes, and I can tell you about, you know, one of the first times I remember encountering a nature spirit, although if I, if I think back, and so nature spirits are things that different cultures have different names for, but we might call fairies or elves or trolls or um, in Hawaii, they might call Menahune in West Africa, they might call Contomble. Um, little people, right? These little spiritual beings that run around or fly around or do whatever they're doing. Um, and an interesting thing about that is um, almost every culture in the world, maybe every culture, I, I, you know, I haven't done a full exhaustive study, has some form of these little people, these little spiritual beings that have supernatural abilities, and sometimes people encounter them. Um, isn't that an interesting phenomena? Like, if those beings aren't real, why, why is, why would that be so common? Why would that model that that archetype of little spiritual beings that you know are sometimes helpful, sometimes hurtful? sometimes we described as mischievous and even, you know, worshipped or, or made offerings to in some, some places in the world um, and, and worked with, in sh- with shamans. Why is that so common? Why does that exist everywhere we look? And why does shamanism exist everywhere we look? Um, so from my perspective, these beings are real and they exist on a plane, so we're talking about, you know, uh, the idea that there are multiple planes of existence, um, maybe an infinite number of universes, um, that sort of thing that are sort of overlaid on top of each other. So in the middle world where we live, where things, you know, where physical reality exists, there is, there, there, well, I'll say there are, from a shamanic perspective, there are multiple spiritual overlays here. And sometimes we can perceive them. It requires a usually requires a shift in consciousness. So some form of shamanic trance state, or sometimes people do it with hallucinogenic um, drugs. I honestly think um, a lot of what's going on with hallucinations frequently is people's perceptions are opening up to multiple planes of existence and 
like a whole ton of material is coming into consciousness and the consciousness is just freaking out and doesn't know what to, <laughs> doesn't really know what to do with it. Um, you know, a whole bunch of sensory information um, pours in because you're just sort of blowing open the doors of perception. And, you know, if you're using hallucinogenic drugs to do that, you, you can't turn that off. There's usually, in my understanding, I'm not an expert in hallucinogens, but there's no turning it off. Once you've bought the ticket, you're going on the ride. You know, some hallucinogens like psilocybin or ayahuasca or LSD last for hours. You know, you can be hallucinating for hours, and if you do a significant amount of that without proper precautions, um, there can be some repercussions. <clears throat> so are people who are taking these things like ayahuasca experiencing, experiencing other spiritual realities or is everything made up in their head? Well, I believe they are perceiving other spiritual realities um, in a very uncontrolled way. And that may be fine for some people, and it may not be fine for other people. When I when I journey, I don't use hallucinogens, and um, I do it in a very controlled way. So I am in control of my journey. I can stop whenever I want. I can come back if something is affecting me too strongly or um, is scary or what have you. Um, but there, so there, you know, there are all of these planes of reality. If you tune into them by tuning your brain or doing hallucinogens or um, you're just overtired sometimes and you start seeing shadow people or whatever, um, you can perceive these things and interact with them. Um, they certainly can perceive you uh, and um, interact with you. And you know, I want to get around a specific idea with um, spirits. And again, this comes from being raised in a, uh, in a Christian family, in a Christian background. Like there's this real black and white dichotomy, dichotomy of good and evil, right? These spirits are good. These spirits are evil. Angels are good. Demons are evil. Um, that's a real, uh, shortcut belief system, right? Like this person is bad, all bad, or this person is all good. Um, you know, uh, by what standard, like that's, that's a kind of a value judgment, right? And so there are, um, there certainly are spirits out there that, I would describe as uh, not nice, not very nice, not nice people. You know, I, I consider spirits to be maybe disembodied people or non-human people, um, you know, because they have, there is consciousness, there's consciousness everywhere. We're, we're immersed in consciousness. The entire universe is a field of consciousness, Um but so from, you know, from a human perspective, um, you know, things that lead me off a path of spiritual development uh, or try to trick me into doing something I don't want to do or um, harm me in some way, I could slap 
uh, I could slap an evil sticker on that, right? Um, and it carries with it the idea of doing harm for the sake of doing harm or like enjoying doing doing harm. And, you know, there are there are people out there who are like that, right? There are psychopaths out there who enjoy inflicting pain um, in harmful ways or enjoy causing harm and, and that sort of thing. And maybe that's maybe that's evil and maybe in that regard there are, you know, there are evil spirits out there. Um, but a lot of what people, in, like, people have negative encounters with spirits. And by negative, I just mean, like, they, they don't perceive them in a good way, right? This is not objective. This is completely subjective thinking. Um, I go into, uh, I went into a cemetery, a historic cemetery in Savannah, Georgia, one time, and um, wound up feeling terrible, getting a splitting headache. My The rest of my family was incredibly uncomfortable in that space. And we all looked at each other and said, uh, we got to get out of here. We got to get out of the cemetery. And we walked out, and as soon as we walked out, um, we all felt better. And as we, like, you know, as we got about 100 yards away from the cemetery walking down the road, um, we all felt completely better. And I had been almost, like, almost struck blind with with piercing headache and nausea and all of these things. <sighs> so what was going on here was... was was I being attacked by an evil spirit? Um, I I don't think so. I think, you know, I was just picking up on this energy of suffering. There were a lot of people who were buried in that cemetery who had died during, um, you know, during the Spanish influenza pandemic in, um, you know, 1918, around then. And... Um, there was a lot of suffering there and suffering spirits, and that energy was coming through in a way that was overwhelming to me. But is that evil? Is it evil for, um, you know, is uh, a dog that bites you because it's scared evil? Um, I wouldn't put that label. I mean, you might. It's a value judgment, but I wouldn't put that label on it, right? It's, it's acting... These you know spirits will act in in a method that's according to their nature, and sometimes that nature is very mysterious to us, and um, sometimes we don't relate well to spirits. And I you know an example of that is if I go out, if I go out into nature and I tromp around and I destroy you know the environment and I do some stuff, well, I might run afoul of the um, spirits that live there who might cause some problems for me. Does that make them evil if they're acting kind of in self-defense? Um, I don't think so. I, you know, I, I think it's self-defense. I try to act in harmony with the spirits. I, I you know, I give offering, offerings. I try not to make a huge environmental impact in my area and um, the spirits of place uh, treat me rather nicely around here. So you can be you can be in harmony with the spirits that are around you and are in place. 
sometimes there are suffering spirits around, and this is, um, you know, when we talk about like hauntings, like when um, people live live in a building or have a spirit that is following them around, which happens. I think sometimes people get haunted more than buildings. People have a certain energetic makeup and, and suffering spirits can sort of follow them around and they can cause them some problems. It can cause some, you know, health problems or problems with luck or things in your house breaking or can cause you a fright if you happen to perceive them at some point. And again, these are negative repercussions, and it, it's very possible that these spirits are not intending to harm you, but they're they're suffering, they're looking for help. And I think of like the lifeguard that swims out to save someone who's drowning, and the person's like desperately clinging to the lifeguard, and if the lifeguard isn't careful, the person can drag them under with them, and they, they both drown, right? Um, so this sort of happens with suffering spirits sometimes, and this is sometimes sometimes the case of hauntings. I've worked with. Um, it's not really my forte, but I've worked with. Uh, I've worked in some haunted, you know, helping to clear some haunted spaces, and you know, one of the things I love about shamanism is we don't exorcise, we don't cast out, we don't push out or destroy or fight or you know whatever you know, these beings, these, these suffering beings, we help them to go where they're supposed to go. We treat them as clients. And um, that really can work to bring harmony, harmony to um, a space or a relationship or an individual. Um, I'm not going to go too much into possession here. Um, I don't, want to don't want to scare people um possession does happen um it is not like it is in the movies we've all seen the exorcist people's heads don't spin around they don't spit up pea soup and float off their beds at least not in my experience um but sometimes people get um you know spirits hooked into them and um you know if that happens um, you really want to deal with that. You really want professional help with that. You want somebody who has um, some really specific training and experience. Um, it's work that I know a lot of shamanic practitioners will not do, will not touch, because um, it's a little bit, it's a little bit sticky and it's a little bit scary. And if you're raised in a Christian background, it can be especially scary from a viewpoint perspective, from a, um, you know, I have my, my cultural and religious beliefs that pile on top of that. And, you know, um, but it is, it is sticky, and it's one of those things that I recommend somebody seek a professional for if, if that is indeed what's occurring. And you would need a professional to confirm that's what, what's occurring if you yourself are convinced a hundred percent that you are possessed by some other being and you have not seen a professional, you, you know, a couple things could be going on. You may, first of all, you may be right. You may be, you know, you're making an assumption um, and you, and you may be right in a professional, um, somebody who is very experienced and trained in dealing with these things might, you know, might concur and might be able to help you. Um, in my experience, most people who present with a possessing being 
um, are not aware of it existing. I think I've had one client in all of my years of experience. They're like, I think I might have this going on. And, uh, she was right. And, um, you know, it was not a big deal to, um, depossess, you know, to, to work through that. Um, most of the time people are unaware they have symptoms, you know, um, they have certain symptoms and I'm not going to tell you what they are because I, you know, I think there is a lot of spiritual hypochondria out there. Um, you know, and there is also, um, I'm going to do a podcast eventually about, um, spirituality and mental health and, um, uh, particularly people with psychosis, um, you know, some sort of psychosis disorder, like, um, schizo schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, that sort of thing. Um, I'm not a psychologist, psychiatrist or therapist. Um, but, um, I have had a lot of people contact me who have, are, you know, diagnosed with some for, you know, some types of psychosis and, um, complain about being tormented by spirits day and night and that sort of thing. Um, uh, you know, just a short take on that. Um, you know, um, I have had experiences which, you know, some people who might be rational would describe as a psychotic um, break, but I've, you know, other people have shared the experience with me, so I'm not the only, you know, it would be a group hallucination if that were taking place. Um, there's this fine line, and I think people, there, you know, there are people who have these um, conditions where they hallucinate consciously, or constantly, not consciously, where they, they're, um, you know, they have, they have, uh, their, their beliefs are affected. I'm under attack by gods and demons and all of these things, um, which I don't like those beliefs are not true. Um, but the hallucinations might be, uh, an influx of spiritual perception that they're unable to control. So when I do shamanic journey, I go into a specific state of mind. Um, you know, it's a, it's a trance state that allows me to perceive the spiritual world in a very controlled manner. And it might be that people who are having a, what we would call a psychotic break or having a, you know, um, some sort of mental disorder, you know, diagnosed mental disorder where they're um, constantly perceiving these things. Um they might be having an influx of spiritual information that their consciousness is just not capable of dealing with and is kind of freaking out. And, um, you know, gosh, I, you know, I really feel for those people. I, you know, what a life um, to be constantly experiencing being under attack, for example, all the time or being out of, touch with reality all of the time. And, um, we don't have really great ways of dealing with that in, <clears throat> in my culture, in shamanic cultures, you might take somebody like that and work with them full time and teach them how to control it. And they might become a shaman or they might become a seer or, um, you know, a spiritual elder, um, because, but they, might have to go through 20 years of intense training and we don't have a mechanism for that, um, in this culture. 
which I think is very unfortunate. Um, you know, what we do, a lot of people who contact me and, you know, I can usually tell, I can say, okay, you know, um, you're going through a lot. It sounds like, you know, have you ever been diagnosed with, um, you know, a mental health disorder? And frequently they'll say, well, yeah, you know, I've, I've been diagnosed with, you know, schizophrenia, paranoid schizophrenia, and I've been given medication, but I don't want to take it because it makes me feel like a zombie. And, um, I can't, I can't operate in the world when I take the medicine. And so frequently people, um, struggle with which is worse, taking the medicine or not taking the medicine. Um, and that kind of, you know, it makes me, it makes me really sad that we don't have a better way of helping people, um, in this culture as a whole, we don't have a way of, you know, taking people in and really working with them in, in a way that may combine medicine and spirituality. Um, so anyway, I, you know, um, I'll, I'm may, I, I'm planning on doing an entire podcast about that at some point in the future. So stay tuned. We'll talk about that. So, um, let me talk a little bit about um, angels and demons, because I promised I would. Um, this is a rather complex subject, um, because growing up in a Christian world, um, I w- wasn't raised Roman Catholic, but um, I spent time in a couple of different churches as a child, um, didn't practice much as a young adult or an adult, but um, definitely, um, definitely had a Christian upbringing. And, you know, a lot of our ideas of things, including like what Jesus looked like and what angels look like and all these things are, um, come from Renaissance paintings, right? Um, where Jesus is light skinned and, um, you know, tall and, you know, however, however he looks, right? Represented with blue eyes sometimes, um, sometimes even light hair, um, you know, Jesus was, you know, a Jewish guy living in the Middle East. The idea that he was light-skinned and had blue eyes is somewhat ridiculous, but a lot of people have that picture of him. And the same thing with angels. We see them as these beautific humans um, with wings and glowing lights around them and all of these things. Um, And it's interesting if you've ever seen um, drawings of uh, what angels like using biblical descriptions of what angels, um, actually are supposed to look like. Um, sometimes they're, you know, um, a a set of interlocking spinning rings covered with eyes with light shooting out of it or, um, animals with four heads and four sets of wings. Um, you know, the Sphinx, um, if you think about the, the Sphinx that went on top of the, the, um, there were a pair of Sphinxes that were on, or a pa- pair of carobs, right, on top of the Ark of the Covenant um, from the time of Moses. Um, well, carobs were Sphinxes. They had the, bo- you know, lion's bodies and human faces and wings. Um when Renaissance painters painted them, somehow they turned them into chubby babies, right? So, oh, look at the, you know, we, and we refer to the, you know, beautiful children as uh, sometimes as cherubic, uh, kind of an old fashioned word, meaning they look like a cherub. 
Um, so very interesting that a lot of our ideas about angels and demons come from art, Renaissance art and plays and all kinds of things that are not um, original source material. But um, and and of course there were uh, Christian mystics and sorcerers and all kinds of things that worked with um, worked with angels and demons. And I talked about the origin of the word demon. And in Christianity, we consider, um, or I wouldn't say we, because I, I don't define myself as a Christian anymore. But in Christianity, demons were are sometimes considered as fallen angels. So you know you have these angels they live up in heaven, and then there was a war against heaven or war against God or they rebelled and Lucifer was the head angel that rebelled and was cast down into hell. And um, very interestingly, that follows a lot of pre-Christian stuff. Um, So if you look at, um, you know, if you look at the Greeks, you look at the, um, the war between the Titans and the Olympians and, you know, they um, they fought to see who would be superior, and the Olympians won, and some of the Titans were cast to the depths of Tartarus, um, which is, you know, a lot of where our descriptions of hell come from, a giant dark chasm. Um, so, uh, yeah, there's a, you know, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of wars between gods in Norse um, mythology, you know, the... the um, the Vanir and the Aesir fight, and they they're always they're always fighting the giants and and you know that sort of thing. Um, so that's a common, kind of a common theme, um, and it's one lens to look through to describe these things that we call angels and these things that we call demons. Um, there's a guy that I follow a lot, and I like his work a lot. Um, his name is Jason Miller. He runs a um, site called Strategic Sorcery. I guess he describes himself as a sorcerer. Um, and even that word sometimes can have connotations of doing evil deeds. Um, I don't think so. I you know, but um, in a really recent newsletter, he described his take on um, angels and demons and good and evil. Um, so I'm just going to read a little bit of his of his email. Um, I do like if this resonates with you, definitely look up his stuff, subscribe to his email list, um, read his blog. He writes really, really intelligently about lots of great spiritual topics. So. Um, His description, angels act in accordance with collectivism, obedience, cohesion, understanding, and approach the passions of life with an attitude of renunciation or avoidance, right? So we think of the the angel on our shoulder, don't eat that chocolate cake, you don't need that, or don't have that other drink, or, you know, whatever. Um, Follow the rules, um, work in the interest of the collective, Demons, in Christian terms, are fallen angels, act out of individualism, disobedience, dispersion, obtrusion, and approach the passions of life with an attitude of indulgence and reverie. This is very general, of course, right? Because, um, you know, if you ever work with angels and demons, they have, they're, they're individuals, and they're, they're spirits, 
And spirit is ultimately formless. And so we frequently give form to spirit um, using our imagination. And so if you were to work through a, like a Western magical system that works with angels, you would picture the angels in a certain way wearing, you know, as humanoid with wings, 15 feet tall, wearing certain colors, holding certain implements, representing certain elements, right? And that, because spirits, particularly angels, are actually formless, you're, you're imagining this when you're, you know, praying to them or working with them, you're essentially creating a throne, which in this case is a, you know, a, um, a form in your imagination for them to inhabit so you can work with them, right? Um, so that's why there can be very, very different representations of what angels look like. And I don't necessarily think that any of them are definitive because they are formless. And the other concept with angels and demons are, okay, let's say... I'm working with um, the Archangel Michael and you live on the opposite side of the world and you're working with the Archangel Michael. How could that be? Like, can't he only be in one place at a time? So again, like angels are particularly formless. They're very high level spiritual beings and, you know, levels are, are hard to describe spiritually. They live on this, this plane, it's very formless, it's their home plane. They can act on lots of different planes of existence and um, might even show up and make an appearance in the middle world. I think that's pretty rare. I think people who get visions of angels are actually changing their consciousness. Um, so you're creating a throne for them, which is an image that they can work through um, and, and, and have an effect. And the same thing with demons. Um, and the interesting thing for me about angels and demons, when when I talk about the divine masculine and the divine feminine, the divine feminine is very collective and very into following the rules and very into <clears throat> cohesion and harmony and all of those things. That's a very apt description that is in alignment with Jason Miller's description of angels where demons are very individualistic and sort of screw the rules. Um, I'm going to do what I need to do. Um, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and very evolutionary. And that, that is very much in line with the divine masculine. So this is not to say, and again, like this, these terms get confusing, divine masculine, divine feminine. This isn't to say that angels are women and demons are men that sort of gross level of physical sexuality doesn't doesn't really apply, in my opinion. Um, I don't think that angels are, you know, they're, I don't think they have gender like that. Um, you know, physical, physical gender in the way that, um, or I should say sex, because gender is is more an identity thing, and I, I do understand that. But um, I'm talking about spiritual 
gender, when we're talking about divine masculine, divine feminine aspects, these archetypal aspects. And so I think that's really interesting how these angels and demons kind of fall in line with what we consider divine feminine, divine masculine aspects. Um, most of us can use a little bit of both and um, a balancing of both in our lives, both of those aspects. I'm not saying you need to pray to angels and, or demons or whatever. I'm not, I'm not saying that at all. You can feel free to work with whomever, however you wish. I'm just saying it, it would be useful for us to recognize both of those aspects to recognize our impulses to break certain rules. Certain rules are unimportant to us and act in certain ways that are important to the collective, right? So, for example, we don't um, steal or murder or rape or do any of those things because it affects the collective. Um, you know, it you know, yes, there's the possibility that would bring harm upon ourselves as well by doing these things that harm the collective. But we are also interested in helping the collective by acting in accordance with certain rules. And certain rules, um, uh, the, you know, the person who's in charge of Mind Valley, Vishen Lakiani, um, uh, in his book, uh, which is a really good book, um, he uses the word rules, which stands for bullshit rules. So there are a lot of rules that society places on us that are bullshit. And they're meant to keep us down and keep us in place. And they don't really serve. They don't really serve anything except a power system that might not be healthy. So the patriarchy that we all live in is not healthy for men or women or anybody. Um, and so breaking the rules of the patriarchy, things like uh, women can't do X or men shouldn't do X or, you know, that sort of thing, or there are only two genders. You are either a man or a woman and there is no in between or, you know, homosexuality is wrong, is abomination, blah, blah, blah. All of those things are bullshit. And um, sorry to say that, you know, if that runs counter to your belief system, in my in my in my view of the world, those are those are bullshit rules. You know, people who are you know people who are over fifty should not do X. People who are under twenty one should not do X. You should not wear these types of clothes. You should not listen to this type of music. You should not enjoy blah, blah, blah. Again, it's, it's, it's a bullshit rule most of the time. I can, cannot think of, I can't, off the top of my head, I can't think of exceptions to those kinds of rules. Because, um, you know, violating those rules doesn't harm anything except a system that shouldn't exist a system that has served to keep people in place, to keep us from evolving as a society and to keep individuals from evolving and think about what kind of a planet we would live on if people, if everyone felt comfortable to evolve in their own personal way, do what they were called to do, 
think of a world full of art and invention and music and beauty and peace because we lifted the repressive yoke that we put that we live under that we don't often even understand because we swim in our culture like a fish swims in the ocean we're surrounded by it and so we forget that it exists and that it applies pressure to us as a, as the water in the ocean applies pressure to a fish we forget that we forget that it um you know just by existing in a, in the a cultural context, um, we take on norms, which are rules about how things should be. And this isn't to say that certain norms are bad or, you know, good or whatever. Um, I think certain norms serve very well. Um, not killing other people, right? Prime example. That's a great thing. Um, I think the norm of, um, you know, having certain ages at which we, we consider um, children to have full agency over themselves is a great idea. I don't want, um, you know, five-year-old children having to take care of themselves because, oh, they're, you know, all human beings are equal. Um, well, I mean, we're equal, but, you know, they don't have... They don't have full capability of, of taking care of themselves. And so we set an arbitrary age in the United States. The age of majority is 18. Pretty much everywhere you need to be 18 to vote. Um, although it's pretty interesting, you know, in most places you need to be 16 to get a driver's license, 18 to vote, 21 to drink. You can join the military at 17 if you have a parent's permission um, and you've graduated from high school or something. I forget what the exact rule is. So there are different ages at which we consider you can do do certain things. Um, and I think I think some of that is protective and good. Um, you know, and I know that there are different rules for different uh, different places. I was in Europe when I was seventeen and could go to a bar and and drink alcohol and. Um, you know, that was a really different experience for me because it would be four years away from when I would be legally allowed to do that in the United States, anywhere in the U.S. I don't know that there are any differences now. Um, I think every state is 21 these days. So it's kind of a national thing. And in general, I think that's an okay rule because um, uh, for one thing, you know, um, we now know that our brains aren't fully developed until we're about 24 um, and alcohol and drugs affects our brains. But in some ways that rule isn't great because um, when I was in high school, it was like the sneaky thing to do to um, binge drink. And that led to all sorts of things like drinking, underage drinking and driving and alcohol poisoning and crazy stuff like that. So whatever, I won't, you know, Again, I go down this path of there are these, you know, there are these sort of bullshit rules. And so the demonic side, you know, not evil demonic, but demonic, like the individualistic side says, you know what? These rules are bullshit. Um, some of these rules are not worth following and are not good for me and are not good for, um, not good for the collective either. And they break out. And, so in a lot of ways, the people who break the rules 
in in big ways um, are the ones who make some frequently make big changes. I'm thinking of like um, you know Gandhi in Africa and Mandela in South um, South uh, uh, Gandhi in India, Mandela in South Africa. Thinking of Martin Luther King Jr. in the United States, these people who pushed um, civil and human rights forward, you know, sometimes paid a big price for that. You know, Martin Luther King was assassinated, as was Gandhi, and Mandela spent a good portion of his life in prison, right? Because they violated these rules that were not just and were not, um, you know, weren't... um, weren't serving anybody really even the power holders um the people who stayed in power i don't think probably had a better life than if they had just shared power in appropriate ways so yeah so my take on angels and demons is a little bit different and um as are other people and people who have worked with them and there are lots and lots of grimoires or spell books out there that work with both angels and demons and some of those grimoires come from you know come from christian sources um it might be surprising to some people to learn that um christians were doing things like spell casting and summoning demons and um but there are mystical and magical aspects of Christianity and Judaism and Buddhism and Islam and all kind, just about everything else, right? Um, you know, just about every major religion has uh, some portion, albeit tends to be smaller, that dabbles in forces that we might consider magical or sorceress. Um, and they all have a mystical aspect as well, which is concerned with the development of the spiritual self, the attain- spiritual attainment, for lack of a better term. I don't love that <laughs> word, but, um, you know, spiritual development, spiritual evolution, um, Attainment is such a, a weird word because you're not really attaining anything. It's more like you're realizing, you're realizing truths, or you're internalizing um, spiritual truths. You might, you know, attainment. I won't get into too much, but it's it's a very sort of greedy word. If I do this, I'm going to get this kind of thing, and I think it steers people down the wrong path a whole lot. So anyway, the universe is full of spirits and, um, you know, with spirits of nature, spirits of place, we have angels and demons and fairies and elves and gnomes and menahune and contemble and um, tomte and um, I do not know the words for every culture's um, nature spirits, kame, um, all over the world. All kinds of people. This is a natural human thing for me. You see it everywhere. And why is that? Because it's either the truth or it serves some purpose or there is some truth to it. Um, you know, and uh, it's very, very real to the people who believe in it. Um, you know, there are still people who make offerings 
to elves in Scandinavia. There are still people in the British Isles and Ireland who make offerings or don't enter fairy circles or do that sort of thing. And certainly all over the world, offerings are left to places. Offerings are one of the the best ways you can um, work with spirits of place or spirits of nature um, is, is to make offerings and, you know, find out, find out what, what they like, what spirits of your area like, um, common offerings or food. Um, in some places it's milk and honey or, um, cornmeal or, you know, what, what have you. Um, but, uh, putting out offerings is a good idea. Um, if you can figure out a way to do that, um, and it's about the intention and it's about, um, it's about, about, you know, um, giving of yourself. There, there can be this spiritual exchange. I make regular offerings. I have an outdoor altar that I put offerings on pretty frequently. Um, and yes, the animals come and eat my offerings and that's fine. Um, I consider them spirits of nature as well. When I offer food out there, if animals eat them, I take that as a good sign um, that they're attracted to the altar, they're attracted to the food on the altar. And hopefully, you know, and even though we're offering physical things sometimes to spirit, um, you know, they're, again, everything is a spirit. So the food you're offering has a spiritual component to them and is nurturing to the, to the spirits. But it also demonstrates... Um, offerings demonstrate a level of sacrifice, you know, even if you're just sacrificing effort, right? Um, but you're all, you, you know, you may be sacrificing some food or even, you know, water or wine or honey or flowers or, you know, what have you. You're putting something, you're putting something out for these spirits. It's a good idea to make offerings, Um any spirits that you're working with, any spirits that you want to have a relationship with, um, because reciprocation is a good thing. You know, if I have a friend that I buy gifts for all the time and they never do anything for me in return, um, you know, I might be a little hesitant if they asked a favor of me, um, you know, or if they always ask me for favors and never do anything for me in return, um, that might build a little resentment, right? So, um, so be in relationship to the spirits where you are. Um, I'm over an hour, but I do want to just, I, I briefly want to touch on the um, ideas of gods and goddesses. And um, I won't talk about God as in the one, the one true God creator of the universe, um, that sort of thing. I think um, yes, you know, I realize that that God is anthropomorphized as a single being in, in many, uh, many religious systems and, in um, monotheistic religious systems. So, um, uh, ha- you know, have at it if you're Christian or, or Jewish or, or what have you, and you believe in a single creator God, um, I think there's truth to that. I think once we anthropomorphize this God, turn that God into a person who is jealous and angry and very, very concerned with whether or not you masturbate or um, eat the wrong foods on the wrong day, 
Um, I think we're, we're projecting very human values on an omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent God. Um, that's my take, and I apologize if that breaks with your belief system, but um, again, it's just my take. Um, but let's talk about gods and goddesses from other pantheons, because there are certainly um, polytheistic systems out there, right? From the ancient systems of uh, the Greeks and the Mesopotamians and the Romans and um you know, that sort of thing to systems that are ancient that still exist today, like Hinduism um, and, and, you know, African religions where they have multiple gods and even um, even some forms of uh, like Gnostic Christianity um, that believed in multiple gods and, um, you know, that, that sort of thing. Um, you know, it's a very common thing. Um, and in my experience, I have um, I've had experiences with beings, spiritual beings that are considered gods and goddesses from other pantheons. And they are extremely powerful, extremely conscious, um, right? They are um, can be very communicative. They can definitely intervene with the you know, with the middle world, they do have that ability. Um, I have not, I've not seen one like make a physical appearance, but in shamanic trance, I've interacted with, um, what would be considered gods and goddesses from other pantheons. And, um, so, um, my take on this is that these are, these are real beings that again, we have projected, human-like qualities and human images onto in order to understand them better. But they are more akin to spiritual, like the reality of them is that they're more akin to spiritual forces of nature. They are, um, you know, they are like, uh, you know, another good description. I think this comes from Jason Miller. Uh, Forgive me if it doesn't, but um, these beings like angels and gods and goddesses and that sort of thing, they're like fire, right, um, on the physical realm, in that um, I can take that fire and um, ignite, let's say I've got a, a, you know, a piece of wood that's on fire, I can ignite another piece of wood, um, and it's still the same fire, and even if I move that piece of wood, you know, to another location, and it's burning separately, um, it's still still the same fire, and so this is how I believe um, this is a good analogy for the way angels and demons and gods and goddesses work is that they're these spiritual beings. They're essentially formless. And so things like location and physical presence and whatever are just things that we as humans project onto them so that we can understand them. Um, and, you know, we picture them in very human forms, but they're essentially their essential nature is formless, but then again, our essential nature is formless as well. Um, we just have physical representations. Um, can these gods and goddesses show up in physical form in the middle world? I don't know. I have not experienced that. Um, but in an infinite and expanding universe, anything is possible. 
Um, so I can't speak to that, but there are a lot of stories from many, um, mythos and I use the word myth here, not as in something that isn't true, but as in something that is a, uh, that is a, an important cultural story. Um, so there are many myths of gods and goddesses descending to earth. Now, I don't know if that means somebody is perceiving them while in a shamanic state or some other, you know, altered state of consciousness or not. I know that the um, illusion mysteries in Greece involved people consuming in large groups, large quantities of hallucinogenic beer that was, um, that had ergot in it, which is a fungus that is a precursor to basically this same chemical has the same chemical makeup as LSD and so they were consuming huge amounts of hallucinogens, and they were in this enclosed temple, and um, you know there was special lighting and special music and all of these things that were designed to affect the consciousness. And people went there and um, by the thousands for well over a thousand years and perceived the gods as real there. But their consciousness was profoundly affected um, so who knows? Who knows? I, I don't, I don't have, um, I know enough to know I don't have an opinion on that. Um, but I do think that these gods and goddesses can intercede in the material world. They can affect the spiritual reality that lies underneath the, um, physical overlay that is the world that we live in. Um, and so, you know, praying to these gods and goddesses or making offerings and all of these things, um, I do think that affects our lives, um, for people who do that. And I do work with, um, I do work with gods and goddesses from, um, a couple of different pantheons, several, um, I don't mix, (laughs) I don't, and not to say like I've, you know, I don't mix the practices, so if I'm working with, let's say, a god from a North Norse pantheon, I will work just with that. And then if I switch over and work with a god from from an Egyptian pantheon, I will um, not do those at the same time. We'll just put it that way. Because um, to me, they're different streams of energy. They're different streams of consciousness. They're different um, frequencies I'm turn- tuning into. And stuff gets muddy, and there are systems that might be incompatible, and I don't think you can just um, mix everything up and call everyone in. I like to have this sort of like clean, okay, today I'm going to work with this goddess and make offerings and recite prayers and meditate and, um, you know, create uh, in my consciousness, create a form for that god to inhabit which is, uh, you know, a type of enthroning when we, in our imagination, when we're praying or chanting or whatever, and we create an image of this God and hold it in our imagination, we're essentially creating a throne for them in our, in our sort of astral consciousness to inhabit. I don't want to get too metaphysical today. Um, I know I did a little bit. Um, I will perhaps talk about that another time. I have done um, 
podcast where we talked about different different bodies, different spiritual bodies, astral and etheric, and you know your soul body and your spirit body and your physical body. Um, so I have I have talked about that in previous podcasts, and I might do more. I might might get go down the old metaphysical path at some point in the future. Um, so anyway, I'm going to wrap it up. I've I've uh, I've talked a lot today. Um, I hope you found this um, interesting. I hope you found, even if my take does not jive with what you believe in, um, you know, you can take it as there are people who believe this way and maybe it's an interesting thing and something to explore as I do with other belief systems that I encounter. I do not automatically put them down because they're different than my belief system. And I think the world will be a better place if we do that in general. And with that, I love you very much, and I will talk to you very soon. Um, feel free to contact me through my website, which is mainshaman, M-A-I-N-E-S-H-A-M-A-N.com. been listening to Speaking Spirit with your host, John Moore. For more info or to contact John, go to mainshaman.com. That's M-A-I-N-E-S-H-A-M-A-N.com.